like to invite you to open your Bible with me to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And we will read together beginning at verse 2. And as you locate that position, let me invite you to uh, join me in prayer as we uh, prepare to hear from God's word today. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for speaking to us. We thank you that as we come in a posture of openness and a spirit of receptivity, that you are faithful and that you uh, come and fill us not only with ideas, but with your spirit, that you are personally here. And so open us to the presence of your person today. Help us to enjoy a time of fellowship and communion with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so Second uh, Corinthians, beginning uh, chapter 7, verse 2. Please open your hearts to us, says Paul. Uh, and in just a minute, we will look at what it is he's talking about here. Uh, we have not done wrong to anyone. Uh, we have not led anyone astray. We have not taken advantage of anyone. And you can you can sort of hear, you know, if this is one side of the phone conversation, you can, and the words that he's choosing are the words that his accusers are choosing, right? So Paul is getting accused of leading people astray, taking advantage of people. Uh, and he says, I'm not saying this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts forever. Uh, we live or die together with you. I have the highest confidence in you, and my pride in you is great. Uh, you have greatly encouraged me, and you have made me very happy despite all of our troubles. Very, very realistic uh, picture of life in the church, right? Uh, you've made me very, very happy despite all of our troubles. Um, the Bible just never glosses it over, right? Just this is, this is reality of life. And then he says, when we arrived in Macedonia, there was no rest for us. Outside, there was conflict from every direction, and inside, there was fear. But God, who encourages those who are discouraged, encouraged us by the arrival of Titus. His presence was a joy, but so was the news he brought of the encouragement he received from you. When he told me how much you were looking forward to my visit and how sorry you were about what had happened and how loyal your love for me is, uh, I was filled with joy. I am no longer sorry that I sent that letter to you. Uh, have you ever had that moment? Oh, I shouldn't have sent that email. Oh, I shouldn't have done that text. Uh, I'm no longer sorry that I sent that letter to you, though I was sorry for a time. For I know uh, that, it was a, that it was painful for you uh, for a while. Now I am glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because, of the pain, but because the pain caused you to have remorse and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you were not harmed by us in any way. For God uh, can use sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from sin and seek salvation. Uh, we will never regret that kind of sorrow. But sorrow without repentance is the kind that results in death. Uh, just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Such eagerness, such concern to clear yourselves, such indignation, such alarm, such longing to see me, such zeal, and such a readiness to punish the wrongdoer. 
uh, you showed that you have done everything you could to make right, to make things right. My purpose was not to write about those who did the wrong or who who was wronged. Uh, I wrote to you so that in the sight of God, you could show how much you really do care for us. And we have been encouraged by this. In addition to your own encouragement, we are especially delighted to see how happy Titus was at the way you welcomed him and set his mind at ease. I have told him how proud I was of you, and you didn't disappoint me. I have always told you the truth, and now my boasting to Titus has been also proved true. Now he cares for you more than ever when he remembers the way you listened to him and welcomed him with such respect and deep concern. I am very happy now because I have complete confidence in you. We'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. So today uh, we are launching a brand new series uh, that we will engage in for a number of weeks, four or five weeks now. Uh, And we are calling this series A Walk on the Dark Side, telling our stories about, and then uh, each week we are going to uh, focus on one of the more challenging, one of the more, uh, some of the more uh, uh, painful, some of the more dark uh, emotions and experiences that we have as human beings. Uh, And we're going to uh, be challenged uh, to find places to not only hear about those stories, but to tell those stories. Um, We often tell ourselves that if we uh, tell stories about weakness, uh, if we tell stories about pain, if we tell stories about darkness in our life, Uh, that somehow that level of being vulnerable, that level of being authentic, uh, will be uh, construed as weakness. People will see us as weak. Uh, um, But our conviction is, and the conviction that we are going to work with in this series, is that when we are vulnerable, when we're authentic, when we're open, when we tell our stories uh, from the dark side, that actually we're seen as strong. We're actually seen as strong. We're actually seen as uh, courageous. And so the invitation to you is to find the courage to be strong. To confront the story that you tell. To confront the story that we tell ourselves. That vulnerability is really weakness. And to say, uh, no, uh, in Jesus we learn that it's precisely in our weakness that God's strength is most powerfully revealed. And so uh, we invite you to find the courage to dare to be strong. The story that we're telling ourselves today is the story of shame. Um, We want to see today what it is, what it does, and how to get free from it. Uh, When we talk about shame in our lives, um, just the word, uh, some people... um, Almost everybody has a reaction to that. And if we could create a continuum of people in the room, if I said get up out of your seat and sort of place yourself on this imaginary continuum, there would be a group of people over on one end, and you would say, I don't have shame in my life at all. I don't understand what you're talking about. Uh, Shame is something that other people experience. I don't have shame. I'm not ashamed. I don't live with shame. Uh, It's a foreign concept to me. Shame is not a part of my life. And there would be some people clustered over in that, that end. And then there would be a whole other group of people over on this end of the continuum. And on this end of the spectrum, uh, you would find people who would say things like this. Shame uh, is the air that I breathe. Shame is the life that I live. I live constantly in a state of shame. 
So you'd have these two extremes, uh, two, two different uh, responses, and then the rest of us would sort of be scattered along uh, in that continuum. Uh, and, what, and what we want to say is that even though we all have different relationships with shame, uh, one of the leading scholars today about shame, uh, Brene Brown, uh, has this to say. She says that shame is not a, a special experience that some people have. Uh, Brene Brown says that shame is a universal human experience. And so... Uh, if you are a human being, uh, if you have experienced anything in life, at some point and at some points along the way, shame is a part of your story. Uh, it is a human experience. It is a universal human experience. Paul calls it here in this text, in verse 10, worldly sorrow. He uses the term worldly sorrow. And what we're going to see is that uh, he, what he has in mind when he's describing this idea of worldly sorrow uh, is most closely related to what we would call shame. So listen to that verse again from a slightly different translation. This is uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Worldly sorrow brings death. So Paul in verse 10, is contrasting two different kinds of what he calls sorrow, two different kinds of sorrow. And in our uh, English language, the words guilt and shame would capture well the distinction that Paul is attempting to make. Uh, when he describes the difference between two different kinds of sorrow, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, uh, the words guilt and shame in our language, in our English language, would capture that distinction. So, uh, when we're, when we're not thinking critically, most of us just sort of assume that guilt and shame are roughly synonyms, that they mean mostly the same thing. Uh, in fact, uh, we, we, we want to say today is that guilt and shame are very, very different experiences. And what Paul is saying is that they're very different experiences and they lead to very different results, very different outcomes. When Paul describes guilt, uh, what he calls uh, godly sorrow, uh, uh, he's describing what he says is a feeling that we get when we do something that's wrong. When we do something that's inappropriate, when we do something wrong, when we violate some standard, uh, we have the experience in our life of guilt. Guilt is what he calls godly sorrow because he said uh, it's what God uses in our life to bring us back on course. Uh, it produces in us what he calls repentance in our lives. And uh, what, what we know is uh, somehow the uh, church in Corinth and Paul had gotten sort of sideways with each other. Uh, they had some sort of a sharp disagreement. Uh, we don't know precisely the nature of that agreement. Paul seems to be very sensitive to protecting identities and uh, details in this letter. Uh, but he starts way back in chapter 1 already describing this situation. So look with me back at chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. And uh, he says this. Uh, he says, uh, he's writing this letter, uh, 2 Corinthians to the churches. He says, uh, I want to tell you that I've changed my mind. I'm not going to come and visit you after all. So they're expecting him to come visit. Now he's not going to visit. And so he's writing a letter that says why he's not coming to visit. He says in verse 23, now I call upon God as my witness. I'm telling the truth. 
The reason that I didn't return to Corinth was to spare you from a severe rebuke. I didn't, I, I, I didn't trust myself. If I had come there, he said, uh, it would have gotten ugly. And so I wanted to spare you from that experience. I didn't want to come there and give you a severe rebuke, right? He said, uh, so I didn't come. And then uh, uh, chapter 2, he says, so I said to myself, no, I won't do it. I won't make them unhappy with another, another painful visit. So that little word, another, there uh, suggests that there was a painful visit, uh, that something happened the last time Paul was in Corinth. And uh, the best uh, picture that we can create about what happened when Paul visited Corinth is that he showed up and there was a person or a small group of people that criticized him or accused him uh, or belittled him, attacked his person, attacked his authority as an apostle. Uh, and then the rest of the congregation, uh, the rest of the church there, sort of backed that antagonist uh, and, and as opposed to backing Paul. And so that's, uh, that seems to be the breach that happened. Uh, in chapter 2, uh, he goes on and he says, um, in ver- uh, towards the end of verse 3, he says, Surely you know um, that my happiness depends on your happiness. Um, uh, and then he says in verse 4, How painful it was to write that letter. So he didn't visit them, but he wrote uh, a, a scathing letter to them. And he says, How painful it was to write that letter. Uh, heartbroken, he says. I cried over it. I didn't want to hurt you, but I wanted you to know how very much I loved you. So just imagine Paul just weeping uh, over this letter that he's writing. It's harsh. Uh, it's, it's pointed. He knows it will be painful for them. Uh, but he writes this letter anyway. And now in chapter 7, he says in verse 8, now, <coughs> after a season of being really concerned about that, now I'm no longer worried that I sent that letter. I don't. I no longer regret. I'm no longer sorry that I wrote you that painful letter. Why? Why doesn't he care? He says, because it's done the work of producing repentance in you. So it turned out to be a good thing. And uh, repentance uh, literally means to turn around. Repentance literally means to start going in the, the opposite direction, to, to head another way. Uh, and uh, repentance means that we were in disagreement with God, uh, we were disobedient to God, and then we turn around and we agree with God again. Uh, To turn around, we agree with God, uh, we come clean about our mistakes, we're honest about the fact that we were going the wrong direction. Uh, When we repent, we're telling God uh, that we want to stop doing the thing that was displeasing to him and that we want to start living faithfully with him again. Uh, When we repent, it doesn't mean that we become perfect, but what it does mean is that we have taken action to align our lives with God, uh, to walk in step with him again. And Paul is celebrating this. Paul is saying, that's what you've done. You were heading this wrong direction. You were listening to the wrong people, the wrong influences, and you've course corrected. You've come back online. You're walking in step with God again. You're, You're in agreement with God. Things are back on track. And then, then... Here's the, here's the thing about guilt. When the, when the correction has been accomplished, right? when the turn has been made, the feeling of guilt, the unpleasantness 
of that experience goes away. Guilt is there to provide that motivation for a course correction, and then that feeling goes away. It stops. So a number of years ago, I've told this story before, my friend Jim uh, and I were uh, at a weekend retreat. At the beginning of the retreat, he shared with me some painful uh, challenges that were happening in his life at the time. Uh, I listened to that story. We went through the retreat. It was a busy retreat. There was a lot of things happening. At the end of the retreat, just as I was getting ready to head out to the car and come back home, Jim came up to me and he said, listen, uh, very Paul-like, he said, this is going to hurt. This is going to sting. This is going to be painful for you for just a minute. He said, but I want to tell you this uh, because it's going to give you the opportunity to see something that maybe you haven't seen before in yourself. And what he said was, um, uh, you didn't love me very well this weekend. You knew that I was hurting. You knew that I had some challenges. Uh, you knew that I had reached out to you. Uh, but you weren't a very good friend. And um, when he said, this is going to sting a little bit, I thought, yeah, you think? Uh, that's, that's, that's great. That's sort of the experience of receiving uh, this painful letter. That's the experience of a painful visit. Uh, and what happened was uh, I had time to reflect on that. I had time to, to think about that. I had time to pray about that. I went back and had some more conversations with Jim about that. And there was some learning that I did. There was some course correction that happened. Uh, there was forgiveness. And then that painful sting went away. The, the guilt did its work. Uh, when my wife Tammy comes to me and says, you know, uh, I haven't. I don't feel like I'm being heard by you. I'm not sure that that you're hearing what I'm saying. I need you to listen to me more carefully. Uh, when Tammy says that to me, there's sting, there's pain, there's guilt about that. Um, there's a part of me that wants to do that better. There's a course correction that happens, and there's learning that happens. And once that happens, that feeling of guilt goes away. You don't nurture it. You don't hold on to it. It doesn't last. That's what happens in guilt. On the other hand, Paul was genuinely worried that that wasn't going to happen for the Corinthians. Uh, he was genuinely worried that the Corinthians were going to respond in a different way. And he says that he really wasn't at ease about what happened until Titus came back from Corinth with a report that said, finally, everything was okay. So he was sort of waiting uh, with bated breath, for this report to come back. And it wasn't until Titus's report that he finally realized that things in Corinth were going to be okay. Up until Titus comes back, he's worried that this harsh disagreement in his pointed letter might produce what he calls worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow is what we might call the experience of shame. And so here's what shame is where guilt says, I've done something wrong and I need to course correct, shame says, there's something wrong with me and there's nothing I can do about it. I am flawed. I am broken. I am damaged. Guilt is about what we do or don't do. Shame is about who we are. Sometimes shame is something that we keep on to ourselves other times, shame is put on us by others. Uh, it's, it's not unfounded for Paul to be worried about the Corinthians' response. 
He was harsh. He did rebuke them. He did get miffed. There, is, there was a pointedness to what he did. And it, it, it was within the realm of possibility that his letter could have been experienced as a shaming letter, heaping shame on them. Shame is unlike guilt because it doesn't lead us to repentance. It doesn't lead us to course correction. Instead of drawing us back towards God, it causes us instead to walk away from God. Shame always says, you're not enough. You're not good enough. You're not up to it. You can't handle it. And when that shame voice is triggered, and you know there's a shame voice that each one of us has in our head, this voice of shame that sounds very much like your own voice, uh, and that, that little shame voice will speak to you whenever shame is, is triggered in your life. And you have a shame voice, and it might say to you, what's wrong with you? How could you do that? How could you be so stupid? My shame voice often says, stupid, stupid, stupid. Please don't let anybody see me. So when we're in shame, and that little voice is activated, what happens? What is it that happens? Well, we can all see what Paul is afraid might happen by listening in on the things that he is relieved to learn did happen from Titus. He's relieved to hear that relationship has been restored. He's relieved to hear that the Corinthian church isn't pushing him away. He's relieved to hear that they haven't rejected him. He says, in fact, that they long to see him and that they warmly welcome Titus. That's what he's relieved about. And in that relief, we can see what it was he was afraid for. It's really clear. I mean, Paul is just such a, a, a penetrating observer of human nature. It's really clear that the worldly sorrow or the shame that he's describing wouldn't have produced any of that sense of connection. None of that reconciliation, none of that warmth, none of that correction. In fact, it would have produced the opposite. It would have produced ongoing hostility, ongoing rejection, in a sense of not wanting to see or be seen. At its heart, shame is always about hiding. When we feel shame, the most urgent thing that we want to do is to hide. Her life was a wreck. After five failed marriages, she finally stopped with the formalities and was living with a man who gave her attention. She knew everybody was talking about her. She knew that she was the laughingstock of the village. So she came to the well midday when the sun was blazing so that she could draw her water in secret and hide from the comments and the whispers and the condemning looks. Uh, He was a powerful man, the most powerful man in the nation. He had wealth, had power, had fame, had it all. He abused that power to sleep with another man's wife. He got her pregnant. And out of fear and out of shame, out of the possibility that his wickedness could be exposed, he hid by creating a cover-up that turned murderous. Uh, She had suffered from a a hemorrhage 
for 12 years. All of that time. Unclean, 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 excluded, pushed to the side, uncomfortable, afraid, uncomforted. She saw Jesus was able to heal others. Others had the courage to stand in front of Jesus and name their need. Her shame kept her mouth shut. But she still longed to receive his touch. But how could she ask in front of the whole crowd? So she hid in anonymity and just touched the hem of his robe. The impulse is to hide, to disappear, to isolate, to cover up. A couple of weeks ago, I stood here and I told a story about a particularly dark season uh, in the life of my relationship with my dad. And I told a story about uh, a particular exchange of words uh, that happened between us. And I had never, as far as I know, told that story out loud to another human being before. That was the first time I ever said those words. And as I said those words, uh, my shame kicked in big time. The shame voice in my head was, you fool, you're stupid, you're disqualified. Nothing is right about what you're saying. And my fear was the same fear that Paul has in this letter to the Corinthians, the fear of being rejected and alienated and cast aside. The impulse of our shame is to hide. That's how shame shows up. And I believe that that deep, deep experience of shame goes all the way back through our ancestors, all the way back through our shared human experience, all the way back to this Garden of Eden, to the first people, the Adam and the Eve, all the way back to that garden when they sin against God for the very first time. And what happens? What happens when they sin? For the very first time, it says, Adam and Eve recognized that they were naked. And their nakedness now caused them shame. For the very first time, they're shameful, ashamed of their nakedness, ashamed of their vulnerability, ashamed uh, to be exposed to the other. And so what do they do? They hide. They hide from each other. They cover up from each other. And then they hide from God. And that experience of shame drives them to hide. So that's the ultimate, the ultimate outcome of shame. You see, it's not just hiding and isolating and cutting me off from the people that I most need in my life, the relationships that I most need in my life. But ultimately, shame makes me believe that I need to hide from God also. And so Paul says that this kind of sorrow, this experience of shame, ultimately leads to death. What does shame do? What is its end game? It kills us. Shame is deadly. Shame kills our relationships. Shame kills our emotional health. Shame kills our spiritual health. And there's even evidence now, uh, growing evidence, that shame takes its toll on our physical health. Shame, says Paul, with a ton of insight, leads to death. So the nature of shame, 
is that it tells us that we are flawed, that we are broken, that there's something uniquely wrong with who we are. The power of shame is that it leads ultimately to death. So what do we do about it? How do we get a little bit more free from shame? How did uh, How is it that this Corinthian church, how did they manage to read this letter from Paul, a letter that Paul himself regretted sending, a letter that Paul himself says as he was writing it, he was weeping because it was so harsh, a letter that Paul himself says he didn't know what the impact was going to be. How did they receive such a harsh letter, words that could very easily have been shaming words, how did they receive that and not go into shame? How did they manage instead to allow that experience to produce this godly turning, this restoration instead? There are a couple of clues that I want to notice. The first one is this. Uh, Paul says uh, that even though this church has caused them some problems, uh, in verse 4, he also says <coughs> that this is a church that's uh, a source of great joy for him. And he uses all of these uh, sort of um, uh, intensifying words. I have the highest confidence in you. My pride in you is tremendous. I have great pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged. You have made me extremely happy. So there's this sense that uh, almost an inordinate amount of joy that Paul has, even though there's this painful experience. And what we, and what we know about Paul is this. Uh, whenever Paul describes one of his churches as a source of joy, Right? Whenever Paul is talking about, you bring me joy, you, you make me happy, you complete my joy, have great confidence. Whenever Paul is really, really, really complimentary about a group, what he always means is that the gospel has gotten down really deep into them. Uh, his, his joy in somebody is that they've heard the story of Jesus, that they've responded with belief, and that they've staked their lives on it. He says there's, 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 when there's evidence that the gospel is coming alive in the midst of a community, then Paul says, that brings me joy. So Paul is sending a letter to a, to a community of people that are deeply rooted in the gospel. Uh, this is a community that has received the good news of Jesus, and Paul has laid out for them all of the benefits and all of the, the gifts and all of the possibilities that the gospel brings to their lives. And so they would know that on the cross, Jesus died for them. They would know that that cross uh, was all about killing somebody, executing somebody with maximum humiliation. The cross is not first and foremost about inflicting maximal pain. The cross is first and foremost about degradation, humiliation, shame. Jesus hangs on the cross naked, as naked as Adam and Eve were in their shame. He hangs on that cross rejected as an exile, as exiled as that woman with the hemorrhage was. Jesus hangs on that cross scorned and hated and rejected right up in the air, right in front of everybody, in a place where he himself, Jesus says, is this place of God-forsaken shame. God-forsaken shame. And Jesus bears all of that they know so that they don't have to live in shame, 
so that they're never ashamed of who they are. There's this great um, reversal that happens where Jesus is naked and we're clothed in his righteousness. Jesus is rejected and we're adopted into his family. Jesus is forsaken by God and we are never, ever apart from him. And so when we are in shame, here's the invitation, to compassionately speak that gospel, to say in the midst of shame, I belong to Jesus. Jesus has already borne my shame. Jesus has already clothed me in righteousness. Jesus has already restored me fully to the family of his father. The invitation is in shame to stand on that reality. And then if you do find yourself believing the old lie that you aren't enough, um, if you find yourself believing instead that you are garbage, that you are not up to it, that you are not worth it, the invitation is to courageously repent. Uh, To do the very thing that godly sorrow does. To turn back to God and to come clean and to tell God that that shame voice is just screaming at you that you want to hide from God, that you want to isolate from others, and ask for God's help to believe that gospel once again. And then finally, having been compassionate with yourself that you belong to Jesus because of the gospel, having been courageous to repent, the final invitation is to do the opposite of what feels natural. If in shame the impulse is to hide and to isolate, then we get freedom from shame when we do the opposite of that and connect instead. Back in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I just want to look at this really briefly. Uh, In verse 7, there's this fascinating little aside. Uh, It seems that this instigator, this antagonist, has finally been confronted uh, by the congregation, uh, his um, disobedience and his um, 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 brokenness has been put on display. And then this is what Paul says. Now uh, it is time to forgive him and comfort him. Otherwise, this is the same fear again. He may become so discouraged that he won't be able to recover. Now show him that you still love him. In other words, don't let this fall into shame. The repentance has done its work. The guilt has done its work. Now, don't let it go into shame. How do you keep it from going into shame? He says, connect, love him, embrace him, include him. Why? Because the antidote to shame is to connect. The antidote to shame is to do the opposite of the thing that you most want to do. When I'm in shame, It feels like connecting with another person, telling them that I'm in shame, being courageous about that. It it feels like doing that will kill me. And then Jesus says, well, of course it will. But you have to die. You have to die to yourself. It's only on the other side of dying that you find eternal life. The cross tells us that freedom from shame is possible. But it also tells us that before there is life, there is death. 
It feels like it will kill me to connect. It feels like it will kill me to tell the truth. It feels like it will kill me to tell the story. I feel like I'll just die. I mean, two weeks ago, if I could have carved out a hole in the ground and gone into it, I would have done that. It feels like I'm going to die. And Jesus says, yeah. And on the other side of the grave is new life. When we're in shame, the way out of it is to compassionately stand on the truth of the gospel, is to courageously repent for believing the lie of the shame voice, and then to connect and love relationships. The good news of the gospel is that you and I can live free from shame. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we do thank you for uh, the freedom that we have in you. Uh, For those of us here today who uh, would find ourselves in a group of people who just live in a constant state of shame, I pray that uh, the power of your gospel would penetrate that darkness just a little bit this morning. Uh, For those of us who uh, live in more of a place of denial and don't recognize the ways that shame uh, intersects with our life, I pray that you would help us to see that, uh, the ways that uh, uh, shame has influenced our relationships and our vulnerability and our courage, and that you would help us to gain some insight into the freedom that we have in you. Lord, do your work. Give us the grace and the courage and the boldness to tell our stories and to find the hope of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have noticed in your bulletins that on March 3rd, we're going to 